0: Good
1: morning everybody. Molo San Molani Hello. How's it? Shalom. You're listening to the IRR show. Proudly brought to brought to you of course in partnership between the Institute of Race Relations and High FM. Welcome guys. And uh, I'm not alone in studio, of course. The ever wonderful co host of the show, Sara Khan, is in studio. Good morning, Sarah.
2: Good morning, Sicily. Oh, excuse me. Sorry. It's early in the morning.
1: (laughs) How are you doing, though? I'm otherwise well. (laughs) Fantastic, fantastic. And good morning to you, the listener. Thank you so much for joining us. Remember, this show you can catch every Tuesday between 9 and 10 a.m. Guys, we have a jam-packed show to you uh, for you today. Let me talk to you about what we're going to be doing today. Remember, our first segment as always is we look at the news that was. The news that was dominating headlines that were that had maybe captured your interest. We will provide some analysis and uh, have a chat about that. Today we're going to look at quite a few things in our first segment. Lasufi's tweets, prescribed assets, which is I think something everyone should be aware of. Um, there's going to be a very interesting judgment today in the Equality Court um, of by um, uh, a tweet done by Ernst Roots, a guy from AfriForum. And uh, we're going to look at the army deployment in the Western Cape. We're going to have a chat about these things in the first segment of the show. So you can look forward to that after the break. And, uh, of course, our major interview today, the main feature that we always have on the show, is an interview with IRR analyst Gabriel Krauser. As we look at the attack on um, the Saudis over the past uh, week or so, What are the implications for that in that part of the world's uh, geopolitics? You know, is the Arab League, so to speak, uh, united around condemning it or are there fractures then? Well, obviously, look at what Israel should be doing as that part of the world seems to degenerate um, into a little bit of anarchy with Iran, um, causing some trouble in that part of the world. So you can look forward to that conversation. And of course, we'll open the lines to you guys. Remember, the studio number here is 0101403020. Can give us a call if you want to contribute to that conversation a bit later, and of course, hey, if you don't want to do a call, you can Telegram us at zero six one eight nine five ten one nine. Now let me do that again: zero six one eight nine five one zero one nine. Much better. And of course, if you're old school like me, you can send us an SMS, and our SMS number is three four five one nine. Sorry.
2: Yes. Um, how's your morning been so far? Uh, my morning has been amazing. Amazing in the sense that I've been watching a little bit of the ongoing saga of the attack on the Saudi oil field. Yep. And I think this is bigger than it's being made out to be. To a large, uh, I mean, if you think about the fact that the biggest oil-related story ever was were the 1973 oil, price, oil oil price rises uh, following the uh, uh, Yom Kippur War. This, this is, this is huge. It's mm. huge because it can, it, it almost can only certainly have been either Iran or an Iran, Iranian proxy that, that, uh, that launched this attack. So that's really, I think, that without doubt, the most significant news. Um, we're going to talk about uh, Panyaza the Sufi and uh, his thoughts on private education, which are less than edifying, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I've, I've, I've looked at that. And as you say, the interesting thing about the Ernst Roots uh, matter that we're going to look at is the context in which it arose after the um, finding by the Equality Court that the old flag should be... Um, if not banned, circumscribed to a large extent absolutely um, I you know just
1: maybe as I quickly go through this um, you know one of the things that really interested me um, this this in terms of this week uh, has been it, where exactly we're headed in terms of the news cycle? We, so we're going to have a good conversation around, um, you know, where the news cycle is at the moment, what people should be looking out for, and uh, some of the big ticket items that we're going to have a conversation about. So I don't know if we're heading to an ad break right now. Uh, oh, it looks like we're not. So in that case, let's get straight yeah. into it. Okay. Um, Sarah. Interesting news week um, Let's begin with the top one Which annoyed me I think To great ends Over mm-hmm. the weekend And I tweeted back at him The MEC of Education In this province province um, uh le sufi Basically is continuing this almost, um, anti-Afrikaans mm. tirade that he, he sort of occasionally goes on and virtue signals this idea linking in his mind that if you're an Afrikaans speaker in this country, you're somehow inherently or prone to racism. And then he tweets, um, you know, invariably in, in this sort of uh, tone. So over this weekend, he, um, he retweets an, an image or a video, a short video of Solidarität. This is a union in this country, mm. an Afrikaans, um, union. Which is launching its own college um, You know, Industry. Afrikaans Medium College You know, basically meeting the demand For this kind of service His tweet then essentially implies And says that, ah, oh, you know Look at this uh, event They're just setting up an Afrikaans only And racist, are his words, um, institution You know, I, I, I then tweet back Along the lines to say, hey man, I, I don't understand How you can suggest that just because Someone is tr- building a Afrikaans medium institution Using their own private funds, by the way That that's firstly inherently racist And somehow a segregationist uh, Which is what he's implying mm-hmm. um, And obviously that tweet went a little bit viral o- Over the weekend, where a lot of people sort of Agreeing with the view that you know, it's, it's this weird, mm-hmm. I, I don't want to call it a war in Afrikaans, but this perversion of language mm-hmm. that politicians are going for, where they basically take a concept, like a language or whatever the case may be, or culture, and suggest that it comes with... Um, some sort of inherent neg- negative sentiment So in this case Afrikaans Somehow equals racist And as a last point and I want to put it mm-hmm. to you Sarah, Is we need to be very careful of politicians Doing this because what's to stop Les Sufi or any other politician in this country Then saying something like oh well look at these Yeshiva colleges um, mm-hmm. We think because we support BDS As, as the ANC does um, Or you know uh, uh, you know, They support the uh, quote unquote Palestinian cause um, We think these Yeshiva colleges Are a, a route to quote unquote evil Zionism. What's to stop mm-hmm. a politician from doing
2: that? Well, if you're anything like uh, Panyaza the Sufi, not very much. Um, the Sufi is the MEC for education in Gauteng. And his tenure has been categorized by leaping in when c- people accuse a school or uh, school administrators of being racist and he has a particular animus towards uh, towards Afrikan schools and as a result of this because he lost rather embarrassingly in the, in the high court when he tried to claim that an Afrikaans school sorry, I, I just forget the name all of a sudden I think it was last year was not admitting kids because they were black and the the situation was vastly different he is distinctly anti-Afrikaans he's a race baiter too he's a race baiter and I think he he flights a lot of this to see how it'll come how it'll play out there and he's I mean here you you have the it's bizarre in every sense of the word it is Afrikaans it is an Afrikaans university but it's entirely private so in in other words it's being developed with after-tax money in a scenario there may be Afrikaans students are going there who are unhappy with the fact that Afrikaans has been essentially diminished as as the medium of education in a number of Afrikaans universities. But that is even if that's true in the case of some, it's not true in the case of others. And also, frankly, it's private. It's none of the Sufi's business. As long as it doesn't harm anyone in the public in the public domain, it really isn't something for the Sufi to worry about.
1: And, and really, just just to come back to my major point here, and, and it's something I, I'm, I, if he is listening, lol, and I hope he is, um, you know, I, I made the point that he's reaching here. He needs to explain how exactly Afrikaans and those mm. wanting to preserve the Afrikaans language is inherently quote-unquote racism. Mm. Um, and what I found really funny is that he impugns um, somehow that Afrikaans mm. is akin to a particular race. Mm. Where the reality is more black people in this country than white people speak Afrikaans as their first language. Um, and besides, no one's going to be forced to attend this institution. So one really wonders what it is exactly, um, about this that, that really got his, his feathers in a, um,
2: in in a, in a, in a, uh, a lot.
1: Um, I, just,
2: I, I think it's yeah. plain racism. I, I really do. I think because the constitution provides for the right to, um, support and sustain your culture. And yeah. It would include all cultures, including Afrikaans. Exactly. So it's it's his, his whole idea is, is racist. I think the problem is, is because he's in, in Gauteng, he doesn't really think of or probably care for whether people, in, the majority of people speak Afrikaans or not. Very
1: quickly, Sarah, Adam um deputy CEO of the mm-hmm. Afri Forum, um, he's about to hear judgment today. What do we, what do we expect from this? What, what are it, the com- Im- implications? implications. Of-
2: well basically he, he kept tweeting the old South African flag after it was, uh, uh, uh I don't know, banned by the, by the equality court. Yeah. And he's been charged with, uh, with, um, contempt of court. court. Yeah. So it, it actually be fascinating to see which way it goes. Absolutely.
1: Guys, we're going to head over to our first ad break. And after this, we will have a conversation with our guest, um, about the attacks in Saudi Arabia. See you now.
0: Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008.
1: Hello, hello, welcome back um, to the IRR show I am your host, Big Daddy Liberty And um, I'm in studio, of course, with the co-host and the ever-wonderful Sara Ghan Sara, just let's quickly recap a, um, a mm-hmm. something what I, what I want us to finish at the point before the break um, You know, one other thing I wanted us to, to look at Is the army deployment mm-hmm. in the Western Cape It's mm-hmm. just been extended for mm-hmm. another six months But a lot of people are wondering Where's the evidence for mm-hmm. its efficacy and its effectiveness?
2: Well, I think the problem is that you, one just hears sort of people being interviewed in the street and the, the older people are saying, what's the army doing here? It's serving no purpose. But kids are saying that they feel safer going to school. Mm. So maybe it kind of, you've really got to go with the way the kids feel about it in the circumstances. Mm. If, if, it, if the army makes them feel happy in that respect, I think you've got, you know take advantage of using it. It almost doesn't matter whether it's actually efficacious in any other
1: yeah. way. <laughs> There's a story in this too Isn't mm. it it's, it's the idea that The South African police services Have been woefully mm. um, Under-resourced And just hapless um, mm. It's not just an issue of resources But poorly managed I mean for example We don't see the sort of level Of visible policing Which essentially Is what the army is doing It's mm. just being mm. visible, visible. And on the ground mm. um, I, I think we'll have this conversation In uh, other episodes of the yeah. show Because there's something Very important to be said About the state of uh, Safety and security In this country um, But yeah let me know waffle away i do have a very interesting guest in studio today a chap who i think you guys will really come to like in terms of the depth of his analysis on most issues this today's issue or today's topic being exactly one of those issues um mr gabriel krauser is a uh, analyst and writer at the institute of race relations um and uh yeah he's joining us in studio gabriel good morning
0: morning, Zizle. morning, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me, guys.
1: Fantastic. Homie, let's jump straight into it because I think this topic is super interesting and it will have major implications mm-hmm. for not only the geopolitics of that, that particular part of the world, the Middle East, but also the rest of the world, given the economy, you know, how yoked we are to the oil price, etc., etc. Set the scene for us. We're talking about Saudi Arabia. It comes out and says, hey, we've just been attacked um, and supposedly it's a group, a Yemeni group that did this, but the evidence just didn't tally up, did it?
0: No uh, So there's a lot of reasons To to doubt That this was a drone strike Coordinated purely by Yemeni Houthi forces uh, One of them is The number of locations That have been mm. hit Somewhere around 19 Apparently only 10 or 11 drones Were used uh, The sort of distance Between the The, the where the drone pilots would be flying them from if they were Yemeni-based and where they were active uh, is dubious. Also, the direction that the drone, drone strikes take, took place in makes it seem much more uh, likely that it was came from an, Israeli, an Iranian direction. And finally, there's been some evidence sort of doing the rounds on the Facebook and the social media, and it has been on some credible uh, news sites of uh, – uh, material that seems to have uh, been the byproduct of a missile fuselage mm-hmm. that was used in this attack uh, all of that sort of puts doubt around the question, uh, doubt to the claim by the Yemeni Houthi group uh, that they were responsible for the tax using only drones without the assistance of the Iranians. It also puts doubt to the claim by the Iranian government that they had nothing to do with the attack. Of course, from the American point of view, because no one would know better what the real answer to this question is than the U.S. military, than the Pentagon. Mm. Uh, it's hard to tell exactly what they have to say because you sort of have to filter it through the Twitter-verse. <laughs> so you 've got President of the u s Trump saying, "Well, <laughs> uh, you know we know who it is, but we 're not telling you and then you 've got uh, Pompeo uh, saying that it Who's was the, the, Secretary of State, the of the course. Secretary of State saying that it was the Iranians um, and then you've got uh, journalists asking the the President whether it really was the Iranians, and him saying, No, 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 none of us have said that, no one would ever say that." <laughs> so we are going to have to wait I think for for sort of globally publicly accessible evidence mm-hmm. to really settle this question but certainly there's a lot of uh, prima facie evidence to suggest mm-hmm. that uh the Iranian government was in charge.
1: Look, I'm a little concerned so just one more thing sorry, from my side um you know the president himself the, the, there's something in this tweet he tweets out uh, Saudi Arabia oil supply was attacked. Okay, there is reason to believe Uh, Excuse me, there is reason to believe that we know the culprit. Um, which is a weird thing to say As a president of This isn't a tweet I'm quoting a tweet um, And we're locked and loaded Depending on verification Now this locked and loaded thing Actually I took a bit of exception too Because it comes back to a point I've been making for a very long time That the United States Needs to move away from The regime change policies The basically seeing itself As the police of the world Because it's costly on the one hand uh, Both financially for them And also in human lives yeah. um, And also it's, it, it, it creates a lot more instability In other parts of the world um, an actual sort of, um, you know, stability, if you will. Iran mm-hmm. is a good example of that, to to, to a certain extent, um, but also Iraq and and other parts of the world. But what I wanted to you sort of comment on before I, I open it to sorry to to pose something to you is, is there not any merit? and I want, I'm putting this to you, is there not any merit in saying the Saudis themselves actually need to sort this out? At the end of the day, it was their infrastructure that was attacked, and apparently it's about 5% of global oil supplies that mm-hmm. are now uh, in jeopardy. But ultimately, these guys are a country. They've invested in a the military. They've invested in an intelligence service. service. They need to sort this uh, thing out on their own, shouldn't they? Uh,
0: so let's first start with the question of can they sort it out on their own? Um, if this really was a, a Houthi rebel group, uh, the answer remains unclear. Mm. I mean, even so I'm saying even if the Iranians aren't involved. So it's just this small little part. The thing is the Houthis, the Houthi rebels in Yemen have been active for over a decade. Yeah. Uh, the Saudi military is involved. They are an official and open backer of the Yemeni government. They're trying to put down the rebellion. But like, between a third and half of Yemen remains in uh Houthi hands. Mm-hmm. And let's just remember, the Houthis' slogan is something like "God is great, death to the U.S., death to Israel, uh, uh, curse the Jews, yeah, and, and glory and glory to God." So, so you know, it's it's uh it's. I think from a in a, in a naive sense, ideologically, they are like ISIS, mm. right? This is this is a totally fundamentalist, totally per- pernicious mm. re- rebellion uh, that 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 does damage to stability in the region and to the world. Mm. Uh, and Saudi Arabia has been trying to put it down, but it hasn't been able to. Mm. Saudi Arabia's got a lot of money; it just seems like it hasn't got a particularly competent um, military. And there's scholarly sort of inquisit. There's There have been investigations into the Saudi military regime as well as the Qataris and and various others in the the region that suggest that these monarchies, these Mm. Arab monarchies, tend to have incompetent uh, militaries Mm. precisely because the monarchists don't want to have... A, a, really robust and competent, uh, military wing because yes. then they worry about the power being seized from them. That's mm-hmm. right. So it's useful to have like, uh, you know, the useful idiots for, for, for want of a more polite phrase mm-hmm. in charge. And that keeps you safer as the prince, but it doesn't keep you safer as a country when you're trying mm-hmm. to exert mm-hmm. your military power. So can Saudi Arabia do anything, even if it is just Houthis to the south in Yemen? Probably not much. I mean, they might wake up now because five million barrels a day is a lot to jeopardize. That's a lot, On the other hand, you know, you've got to remember that Saudi Arabia has the cheapest oil production capacity in the world. Mm. So I, I, I remember reading in the Economist that something like twelve or fifteen dollars a mm-hmm. barrel would have them at break even. Mm-hmm. which is much, much less than anywhere else in the world. Venezuela's got the most expensive oil in the world. They've got the cheapest. So for them to be hit like this, what, what it does is it Im- increases their production costs because yeah. they're going to have to redo that, that facility. But at the same time, it increases the world's oil price, right. which means they're taking in more money. So even from a fiscal perspective, I'm not sure how – it's unclear how much damage this really does to them yet. Yeah. It certainly does some, but how much is unclear. So Saudi Arabia, in short, I don't think can solve this problem by itself. I do think Saudi Arabia is looking for allies in the region, yeah. particularly Israel, yeah. and in the world, the U.S. being the most dominant force. Is di- is the direct application of force going to change the situation? If it's focused on the Houthis, perhaps. I mean, ISIS really has been uh, – the, the footprint of ISIS in Syria and in uh, other parts, of, that other, region, other parts yeah. of the region has – has almost been taken down to nothing absolutely through military action Mm. Uh, it was expensive it did cost a lot of lives Mm. uh, so it's a very serious thing to take into consideration but if the force could be focused on that region of Yemen controlled by Houthi uh, rebels then I think maybe there's, there's, there's progress to be gained if Iran has pulled the strings here then the equation totally changes because iran is a is a serious force iran yeah. iran's regime cannot be i think undone from outside in a sustainable way uh at 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 any kind of decent cost to life and tr- to to blood and treasure uh you know you just have to look at iraq and Afghanistan to see what can happen, uh, how you can really, in essence, make the problem worse. You mm. destabilize you 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 topple a dictator, and then you create an unstable uh, hotbed for terrorism and a client state to to foreign agents and the Chinese and the Russians who who are looking for for a way for them to impress their own power. Mm. The
2: world. Isn't this? As a lot of pundits have held for many, many years, that despite what may appear in the Western press and may be expressed by sympathies for the uh, for the Palestinians, the big issue in the Middle East is not the Israeli Palestinian conflict. That's it right. is the Sunni Shia conflict. The n- Saudis being the main Sunni player and Iran being the main, the, the, the main Shia player, Correct. and that's that is a that is literally a, a conflict of. Biblical proportions. Mm, yeah. Um, so it's not just a matter of one being annoyed with the other. It's much, much greater than that.
0: Right. And the and the Houthi rebels are Shiites, mm. and it, and 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 they inspire Shiite minorities. I think part of the play here is to inspire Shiite minorities in other Arab states mm. uh, that are Sunni majority to to sort of you know mimic this uh, this this achievement that they have, mm. if you want to call it that, mm. where you, you you manage to sequester a part of the region, turn that into a little microstate of terrorism. You can use whatever resources you have there, whatever powers of coercive violence you have to extract taxes from people there mm. to fund further and further mm. violence, which destabilizes things. And let's not forget, part of the problem with America swooping in from the outside, to go back to that point, mm-hmm. is when they do that, they it one of the big dangers is that they then coalesce uh, for example, Shiite forces around this mm-hmm. idea of the common enemy that's coming in to bully people because it's quite easy, particularly in, in areas where the the control of information is is fairly centralized or, or, the, or there's a breakdown in information flow mm-hmm. to sort of get a sense of cause and effect. Are, is our country being invaded because of… Uh, rebels that went and destroyed the world's, you know, attempted to dis- to disrupt the world's energy supply, mm. or is this country being invaded because there's some sort of American-Jewish mm. conspiracy to wipe out but, Shiites? You can you can run your own narrative much more easily in the desert where there's mm. like very little access to information and then you can create a common enemy and sustain this, this, this sort of pattern of violence.
1: Let me bring you back to the Iranians themselves, because for all intents and purposes really, the evidence so far points to this being something that they would actually do. Yeah. Um, the Iranians themselves aren't one cohesive force per se. We were having this conversation yesterday on another show that we do, The Daily Friend, and you're making a point about you know that the Iranians themselves, in terms of those who are in government, might actually come and say, "Look, it wasn't us, mm-hmm. but it was could have been one of our proxies because we know they have proxies in, in that part of the world, various proxies from Hezbollah mm-hmm. to Hamas, which is large and successful." Yeah, right? um, talk to us about that.
0: Yeah, so. Um, if, if he has a philosopher's name, he's probably the, the the greatest political theorist in in the U.S. In my opinion, at this time, his name is Philip Pettit. He's at Princeton University. Uh, he's got this phrase, "responsibilization." So uh, one way to think about it is a teenager. A teenager is not really fully in control of everything. Uh, <laughs> but sometimes you might say, okay, you know what, we are going to leave you for the weekend. You get the keys. You've got to take care of the house. And this is how you become a grown-up is you get slightly more responsibility than, than you're really ready to bear. And, and And you have to actually do that to make proper agents. Hmm. Now, when it comes to states, you look at Iran. You look at the tentacles that it's got going through Hezbollah, going through the Iranian people's revolutionary guard, and so on, going through, it seems, the Houthi Mm. rebellion in Yemen. And it's, 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 you know, if you have some distance between the central control and these arm's length agents, then it is to some extent true to say, well, we're not in control. You know, if we wanted to try to stop them now, it would be a little bit difficult. It's not as simple as just giving them a phone call and say, stop. So they're a little bit in the situation, I think, of a teenager that's a little bit sort of uh, wheeling and slightly out of control. Gone rogue. But you have to <laughs> responsabilize – I think you have to responsabilize states that are in that position mm. – you have to say to them, it's up to you mm. to make sure that the taxes that you're collecting, that the oil that you're dealing in, that the, that the sort of coerce, that the f- coordination of violence that a government is, your military, your police, your intelligence services, that those are all coordinated in a way that if money from your fiscus is going into funding, uh, uh, terrorism, th- that you're able to stop that, that you're able mm. to hold people to account. Mm-hmm. That is response. So from the outside point of view, uh, there's a need to responsabilize Iran mm-hmm. to say, even if you're a little bit of a late teenager right now, we have to treat you like an adult because you have to start <gasps> acting mm. like an adult. And adults don't let their money go to terrorists. Mm. Adults don't let their military uh, material, mm. their drones, their their sort of uh, those equipment ships, stuff, their yeah. equipment, their, their 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 missiles get used by uh, other. People sort of on a half we were borrowing it. we didn't really know what they were going to do with it That's not a grown up way to behave And
2: and isn't one of the problems, another problem potentially With proxies, particularly as you start to have A number of proxies, is that a proxy Is uh, as powerful and successful as Hezbollah By and large Um, Their very power and their very success As an isolated unit is is a recipe for a possible breakaway or an alternative um, leader of something or other. And that's, that's where the, the, the parent has lost control.
0: Right. Well, yes. So, yeah. So, so, yeah. You can think of the family as a unit as well, where the parents have to take responsibility for their children if they're not yet of majority age, and then you responsabilize the whole family. You say if the little kid is running down the street and he breaks breaks a window, he can't afford to to pay for it. It's up to you. The parents have to pay yeah. for it, and and this is a this is a fundamental principle of geopolitics. Uh, that has kind of embedded what we now think of as modern civilization, Mm -hmm. is that you have organized boundaries within those boundaries of states, of nation states. You have centralized governments that take responsibility for certain levels of coordinated violence. They take responsibility for making sure that the police and the criminal justice system is putting crooks behind bars, and they take responsibility for making sure that they're... That the, the material that they gather in order mm. to do that isn't misused. Mm. And by the way, if I can just make a small connection to South Africa, Ooh. one of the terrible things about the violence in the Western, in the, in mm. the Cape Flats is the number of police detained guns mm. that were then sold to gangsters by the police mm. yeah. to f- to fuel this violence, mm. basically just for personal gain, I mean literally thousands of mm. guns associated already through ballistic evidence to thousands of deaths of women mm. and children in the Cape Flats. Yeah. Operation Impy was the program to, to, to uncover this and some cops were put behind bars, but it was kind of, uh, it looks like it was crushed years ago. Mm. Has it come back? One, one searches. Mm, one searches in vain for evidence that Operation MP has been resurrected. Mm. And so, I mean, I think part of the reason that you've got the the military going in there is a sort of attempt to responsabilize the police. But I think they they're, they're missing the target yeah. a little bit. You really need to get to the to the core of the issue. Anyway, uh, um,
1: yeah. let me bring you back to I. Maybe a point I was making around why I'm skeptical of any call for, you know, sort of outside parties to get involved in this, um, <clears throat> at least in the initial sense, um, you want the region to be able to respond to these mm-hmm. sort of uh, issues so that you build stronger partnerships in a region like that, um, even partnerships that begin to break old stereotypes. So, so for example, we mm-hmm. have seen Israel. Really begin to warm up relations with a lot of countries in, Arab League countries mm. in that part of the world, from Bahrain to, um, the Saudis even, they've improved that relationship. Um, very briefly, um, can, what is Israel's role in this? Does it come out and say, you know what? Iran's been a big problem. We're going to support you in, uh, crushing this particular, uh, in, incursions into your sovereignty as, 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 as the Saudis.
0: Yeah, I think that Israel's Israel is the real key player here, because uh, Israel has the military competence that Saudi Arabia lacks, mm. and Israel has uh, every reason to to further ramify an already established sort of warm relationship that they have with the Saudis, and not just with the Saudis. So I think that as long as as long as their intervention is precise, and as long as they and as long as every effort is made to to damn the the bad guys. To damn those agents within the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, for example, or the Houthi rebel movement and not the entire Iranian people or the entire Shiite people, then I think Israel can do great good.
1: Hold that thought. We'll be right back after this break. We'll continue the chat.
0: IFM 101.9 megahertz of
1: life. Welcome, how's it? And shalom. Welcome back to the IRR show. My name is Big Daddy Liberty in studio, of course, with my co-host, Sarah Gunn. If you've missed it, um, or you've just joined us, rather, we're in conversation with IRR um, analyst and writer, Gabriel Krause. And we're talking about the Saudis who, um, you know, experienced an attack on one of their oil fields or infrastructure, excuse me. Um, And we're looking at the geopolitics of that region. What should happen um, now? We're at the point of the conversation where we are looking at the role of Israel. What should it be doing um, to strengthen uh, and build maybe new partnerships in that part of the world and help, you know, weak countries respond to these sort of attacks? Um, if you want to join us in the conversation, remember our studio number is 010-140-3020 or send us a telegram at 061-895-1019. The SMS number, of course, is 34519. Gabriel, I want us to pick up this conversation again um, on the issue of Israel Now, Israel we know is a powerhouse A, a technological, technologically advanced um, state That really plays a very important role In that part of the world I sort of left you with the question I didn't mm-hmm. give you enough time to hash it out mm-hmm. Should the Saudis be coming to Israel and saying Guys, look Let's let's actually build a stronger partnership that is regional that can respond to the threat that is Iran and its various proxies, including Hezbollah, etc., etc. Should that not be the more optimal route than asking the Americans to sort of clumsily st- uh, step into this?
0: Yeah, I think that there are there there are serious benefits to that. Uh, to start at the sort of most at the level of grand narrative, um, and and these things do matter in a in a in a bigger picture kind of way i think it is very important for uh islamic and jewish relations in that region to in a demonstrable and irrefutable way continue to improve mm. it wouldn't this wouldn't be the start of that but i think uh for for an ever closer sort of connection to develop uh, on the basis of values values of peace values of free trade values of uh you know uh uh,
2: liberal values. Liberal values. Yeah.
0: <laughs> mm. o- also, values of 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 taking serious, hard looks at um, at proponents of wanton violence, mm. at at those who are prepared to use terror and destruction in order to get short term, short winded gains. I think, I think that kind of connection is important. I think at a at a sort of basic uh, geopolitical, real politic level, um, there is there is. As I mentioned earlier, a nice overlap between Saudi Arabia's, uh, abundance of natural resources, its, its, its relatively well-developed clout within the region through diplomatic ties t- to various of its neighbors and Israel's extremely competent military, uh, and intelligence services. And, and remember we started with this thing about the, the U.S. being in the best position to know from an outside point of view. But of course, the Israeli intelligence is, is, uh, is pivotal. Mm-hmm. Uh, to, to the region and I think that developing uh, shared intelligence networks is going to be an important part of sort of what goes on behind the scenes and that we don't get to see p- perfectly clearly. It does make a very big difference whether, to me, whether or not Iran has really been involved. If Iran has really been involved, then I think Israel could play a great role as a champion of the issue. Uh, it could play a great role at the intelligence level gathering, uh, po- uh, point of view, and it could play a great role in assisting the Saudis in Yemen. But in terms of taking on Iran directly, mm. Iran is such a big player that I think you don't just need the US, you really need Europe. I mean, I think Europe is the big missing factor in this, uh, in, in the Iranian relations conversation more or less for the last month and a half or two we've had this tit for tat hijacking of of oil tankers um, we've had, uh, you know, since earlier in the year, the U.S. trying to pull out of, well, pulling out of the uh, nuclear deal with the Iranians. The Iranians then saying, well, look, we've said all along that we're developing our nuclear just for power purposes. I mean, just for electricity, you know, power purposes. But now we're telling you that we are going to enrich our uranium to the maximum and we want to be able to be nuclear weapons ready. And Europe sits on its hands and Europe sits quiet and Europe says, please, please, Mr. Sir. Hey, what can we do for you to the Iranians? And that creates the gap. Mm. That is the major gap that the Iranians are, are perpetually able to exploit. Mm. Why? Because it means that they're able to continue to supply oil through, uh, through their channels within the region, particularly to uh, nefarious forces that have been you know, sort of… In the murky waters of Syria and Lebanon, but also to the Chinese. Yeah. Without European pressure, the Chinese are going to keep that valve open and that's going to keep drawing money to them. And that's going to keep the sort of uh, darker part of these forces live and well nourished.
2: Okay. Sorry, we have a SMS. We do indeed. Uh, the question is, but surely Iran is only too happy to use proxies to do its bidding. Are they not happily messianic and believing in a conflict that will bring about the end of the world?
0: Right, I think that they are uh, on two different levels that is there's a that's a correct analysis. Uh at the level of basic ideology, it is true that there's a, there's a fundamentalist force that really does believe in some kind of divine reward in the afterlife for those who can bring about uh, the end of times. Now, and at a geopolitical level, the Iranians are well incentivized to increase instability increase violence increase tensions and decentralize power further and further uh the more that that happens the the more likely it is for um Intervention not to take place from the Saudis, from the Israelis, from the US, from the Europeans, because it's just too costly and risky. Or if that intervention does take place, for it to fuel further violence, to fuel this common enemy narrative, uh, that is the only way that sort of talentless zealots are able to hold on to the the reins of power and 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 continue to fund their their sort of monochromatic uh, lives of of hate and. Uh, well, they're quite tedious lives. I mean, they'd be terribly boring if it wasn't for the fact that they were also killers. Mm.
2: Can I, can I, sorry, uh, can I just ask one thing? I noticed that in response to the crisis, Russia has offered to sell arms to Saudi Arabia. Mm. Now, if I'm not mistaken, and I, I am open to correction, Russia has been a supporter in that respect of Iran till now. So, I mean, obviously they're looking after their self-interest.
0: Well, you know, if you, one of the great things about being an arms dealer is that you can sell to both sides. Mm. Uh, and <laughs> I think that the Russians, uh, since, since the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, have, have rarely missed an opportunity to, to make a that. to make a quick buck out of, or, or any kind of, sh- uh, short term gain out of mm. the global instability.
1: Gabriel, tie it up for us, um, as we sort of look at the last minute and a half of this conversation, um, Looking forward, this is obviously going to play out quite significantly in the global economy, and I think we're going to see that trickle through in the oil price eventually. Um, But as you conclude, talk to us about what needs to happen from this point going forward.
0: Yeah, so I think that probably this attack... Uh, as 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 dramatic as the images are, is not likely to result in any kind of military action against Iran. I think that it's going to be somewhat of a tactical gain for them. It's going to increase the oil price for their producers as well, for their mm. sales. That's going to be tasty. Uh, I think that in order for that short-term win for Iran to be counteracted in the medium term, uh, two things need to change. Uh, one is that uh, Israel and Saudi Arabia need to more vocally and more uh, incontrovertibly sort of stand together and coordinate their response, particularly against the Houthi rebels in, in Yemen. And Europe needs to sh- shift its attitude from taking... Uh, whatever flack it needs to take in the hope that, you know, if you get slapped in the face, eventually you'll come to an agreement and and, and and really standing on principle and saying, you know, some things are not acceptable, and if you're going to keep up with this, then it's not going to last for you.
1: Absolutely. Gabriel Krauser from the Institute of Race Relations. Thank you very much for the analysis. You can find Gabriel at www.dailyfriend.co.za. FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. Malosan Bonani, welcome. How's it? And shalom, welcome back. Wow, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Gabriel Cross. Gabriel, of course, is an analyst at the IRR, and you can find him and all the other analysts on that show. Uh, excuse me, on that in that um, institute at the Daily Friend website. Um, just log on to www.dailyfriend.co.za for all your news, analysis, and opinion from those chaps. Um, as we sort of wrap up the next sort of three minutes or so, sorry, in our last segment. Um, let's look at the week ahead. You know, mm-hmm. some of the stuff that we want our listeners to be quite aware of, um, big, big, News ticket items The first one I have in mind Of course is the IRR Same organization Will be launching its um, counter To the expropriation without compensation um, Narrative mm-hmm. uh, One of the famous uh, thinkers there uh, Andrew there Jeffrey mm-hmm. um, Is going to detail what alternatives We can do to preserve Firstly property rights um, In the country and not go down the route Of giving politicians the power to take out Our
2: property mm-hmm. The, the thing is that when one talks to um, ordinary people about all these very big issues that threaten to erode rights... You tend to get asked, you know, it's all very really well to, to criticize, which we do very well, but what about mm. putting forward alternatives? Mm. And we believe that one must and should and will put forward alternatives to all of these issues. Unless, of course, we're saying that a piece of legislation should just not happen at Absolutely. all. Absolutely. Um, but if, if, if there is an alternative to put, we will put it, and it'll be very interesting to see what Anthea has to say. Absolutely. Um, anything else, Sarah, from your side before I...
1: I, people just, how I, reach
2: us. I just think that in general, and it is a bit of a, a general topic, is the question of national health insurance. Yep. Um, we have probably nothing good to say about it, and we have a whole lot of reasons why. We've written extensively and on alternatives, it. alternatives, as you say. And alternatives, and the alternatives are, shall we say, lit- cheap and, and, and really easy by comparison. Mm. So that is a subject that is going to become bigger, particularly because it affects Absolutely everybody
1: Absolutely. One of the points just overarchingly that I, I want to make here is that whenever you hear any of our analysts At the IRR speak um, We always talk about essentially How we can place power away From politicians in the state and into the hands Of individuals and yeah. families So whether it's the NHI, expropriation dollar compensation um, Prescribed assets Or even safety and security mm. How do we advance um, the rights and privileges Of individuals and families and communities And move away from this idea That politicians should run and control everything. Um, guys, thank you so much for listening. Remember, if you want to find us, um, you can do so by going on to the Daily Friend website. That's www.dailyfriend.co.za you can follow me Your favorite fat boy Big Daddy Liberty On any of my Social media platforms Whether you have Facebook, Twitter Or YouTube Just search Big Daddy Liberty Remember I put out The show every week On Wednesday Called The Big Liberty Show This week I look at Expropriation without compensation Excuse me I look at prescribed assets um, And I ask it's South Africans it, on everyone. the street um, Are you willing to put up Your hard earned money In order to fund scom And you can look out For that episode On Wednesday At 5pm And of course Remember Helen Zilla is now part of the Institute of Race Relations and she has a podcast too called Tea with Helen that comes out every Monday um, in the afternoon so you can look forward to that on YouTube just search Tea with Helen and um, on that glorious note I am Big Daddy Liberty
2: sorry, and I am Saragon.
1: and you've been listening to the IRR show we'll see you guys next week